All right, everyone, let's get the show started. Welcome to our DevOps office hours. It's January 25th, 2023. My name is Eric Osterman, and I'll be leading the conversation. I'm the founder and CEO of Cloud Posse. Cloud Posse is a DevOps accelerator. We help companies conquer AWS using our proven blueprints for Terraform. If you're starting from scratch or just not happy with what you have today, then you need to go to cloudposse.com slash quiz. You'll book a session with me directly, and I'll show you what your future can look like. And best of all, you can have it today. For you, those of you new to the call, the format's very informal. My goal is to get your questions answered. If you're curious about Cloud Posse or any of our open source tools or modules, this is a great place to ask. If you're tuning in from our podcast or YouTube channel, you can register for these live and interactive sessions by going to cloudpolicy.com slash office hours. We host these calls every week. Our call today is recorded. We'll automatically post a recording of this session to our YouTube channel. So if you enjoy our content and want to support what we do, please hit those like and subscribe buttons. It helps us out a great deal. Just head over to youtube.com slash cloud posse again, youtube.com slash cloud posse. So with that said, let's uh, kick this off. I got a few announcements here. All right. So uh, excited actually about some of these um, this week. So this was a new one, something that not being a predominantly security practitioner, I hadn't heard of uh, uh, using credit cards this way. Obviously I'm familiar with the usage of canaries, um, like, you know, Canary uh, SSH servers and things like that. This is really awesome. You can generate a credit card token that you can embed throughout your systems in various places, uh, put it in your blogs, put it in your um, uh, database as random records, have actual credit card users, uh, have actual users with this added as a uh, credit card. You could even add these as auxiliary credit cards in other services you depend on maybe like Circle CI. I believe there's a case somebody was using this and that's how they knew that Circle CI was breached before the uh, notification that Circle CI uh, was compromised. So uh, if any of those numbers uh, that you register are used in any capacity, you'll get immediately notified and you can escalate that through whatever incident management channels you have. It's just another layer of defense um, it's not <laughs> in lieu of all the other things and hardening we want to do, but I like this because let's say somebody has made it through all your layers of defenses and still managed to get uh, this information and use it, it um, uh, you'll, you'll be aware that you need to start uh, an incident um, remediation process or incident uh, discovery process. Now, the other interesting thing about this and I'm not sure uh, in which camp I sit. You can also be very vocal <laughs> that you are doing this. And then maybe attackers uh, will have two options. One is they'll be very careful about testing those numbers. So, um, you know, uh, they, because using one, if you accidentally test one of those numbers that's canary, the entire pot is compromised um, as notifications will go out to the credit card companies of all the compromised uh, credit card numbers and they, they will be disabled. Uh, or two is that attackers will uh, get smart and understand what the uh, prefixes are of these credit cards and just scrub them from the database. They say that they're working on obtaining more random, more, um, I forget what the term was, bins or something of credit cards that are spread uh, across a larger pool of uh, providers 
And that'll make it a lot harder to identify which of these are canaries or not. Um, I guess, uh, obviously, attackers can start using canaries as well to start harvesting a list of what the bins are. So it's probably a um, arms race to, to, to do it thoroughly. Um, I think uh, maybe just all the credit card companies should come together and support a standard like this and support uh, canaries, which would make it impossible to really, you know, limit it to a prefix. Any, uh, any other thoughts on this? Well, if they, if they don't do the limiting of it to a prefix, then the length of credit card numbers is going to have to get significantly longer. <laughs> because they're generating too many. Yeah, well, and and because you'll have you'll need some sort of like central registry or something otherwise. Like you'll you'll need some way of algorithmically saying, I have a range of credit card numbers that is assigned to my institution so that I can then it's like yeah. IP addresses, right? So like you're but you're I guess what I'm that way. What I'm suggesting is I think uh, institutions should all contribute some small percentage to this pool, so, uh, to the pot, oh, so there's a larger pool. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so like a Chase, uh, Chase would give a, a bunch of them up and then you would have things that look like Chase numbers in the pot. Exactly. Yeah, that that, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And, and, it, and, and it, would, it would behoove Chase uh, to randomize those as well. I think that this would should be almost like a hygienic, Thing that they should incentivize, um, like uh, like automotive insurance companies, um, you know, in installing the the trackers uh, in your car to you know determine if you're a safe driver or not, which could be intrusive depending on how you look at it. But hey, they do it. Uh, similar to uh, health insurance companies uh, using biometric data that you harvest, or you collect about yourself, health data uh, to give you lower premiums. Um, having these having your customers have these in their databases reduces your risk exposure because you'll be notified of compromises sooner. Heck, <laughs> you know, the, the credit card companies themselves might want to uh, be monitoring or having some of these canaries themselves uh, to identify compromises. So um, shortening the feedback loop. I think it's uh, really interesting. Certainly, the insurance companies that the credit card companies have <laughs> will would be would be interested in that. Exactly, that's how it actually works. So, yeah, the, the credit card companies, insurance companies, will give the credit card companies a lower premium if they have their customers start doing this. So, exactly, incentives need to be aligned. Um, the next one is um, an interesting controller for Kubernetes. It's not necessarily something new. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Put telephone number, massa Paul. Yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry, got distracted there. Uh, the next one is uh, not necessarily a new announcement. It's called Kata, um, and it's a auto scaling controller uh, for Kubernetes. It can be used uh, uh, for horizontal pod auto scaling as well as, I believe, uh, node auto scaling or cluster auto scaling. Uh, what's beautiful about this is that it has plugins for uh, a lot of the common use cases. Uh, this came up for us because we wanted to uh, auto scale a uh, deployment uh, based on the size of a Redis queue 
and it supports uh, a number of uh, Redis uh, sensors here. It also supports Prometheus uh, sensors and um, even Datadog as well. So if you have the, the things in Datadog you want to collect. I like this as a generalized way or strategy to implement um, auto scaling. Obviously something new for us, but if this is a problem you're facing, something to look into. Has anybody been using Kata? Next announcement is something um, I tried out quickly. I, it, it was the the, uh, the impetus for me to finally go and just create a, a ChatGPT API key so I could test this out. I got excited about it because I really hate writing commit messages and thinking about it. Um, also having commit messages consistently done uh, for a team and at a certain level quality. Uh, can also be a challenge. So I really like this uh, and I, I validated it on a few very small examples and it worked for me. Your mileage will obviously vary on the types of changes you're making, the number of files you're changing. Um, and what I think this does a good job of is providing you the what of what changed in your pull request, maybe not the why you changed it in the pull request. So you, you're still going to probably want to construct why you're making these changes. And obviously I'm saying this kind of with the cloud posse lens. Um, anytime uh, we open a pull request uh, against our, our modules, we always do a follow this format of a, of a what and up of a what and a why. So like what's changing, and uh, why we're making these changes. Uh, Matt, I know you tried it. Uh, are you still using it or you just did that one temp test? Um, I've been I've been playing here and there. I, I find it, like you said, I find it very useful for the what, but still have to create the why and um, Merging the two um, is a little difficult. You have to do it in like two steps. You basically have to like do the commit message with that. Then you have to edit the commit message and add the why, and then and then like resave the commit message with the with all the things. Like it, it hasn't it hasn't been the smoothest thing yet. I was I was thinking of um, of opening a PR to uh, to make that uh, a way that you could add like a summary to the top of it, and then it would add all the rest of the things as a um, as like the, the detail of that. So that makes sense. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You should provide, you should still provide the why, uh, possibly yeah. in your, uh, message and it'll append the, 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 what. Yeah. I'll get really but, impressed if we can figure out why I made all these changes. Yeah. That, then it will be useful. It, <laughs> but, but this comes down to coaxing uh, chat GPT, um, maybe just changing the prompt uh, that, that is being given. Uh, you know, can you tell me what changed and uh, maybe suggest why these changes are being made? <laughs> That'd be yeah. really awesome. That, that'll be good. If, if it can do that, then I'll use it every day. That'll be great. Yeah. Um, next, uh, next announcement is something Venkata shared. Uh, NSA has come out with a set of guidelines for companies adopting IPv6. It's getting more and more common um, every uh, week. Uh, it feels like Amazon is announcing another service with support for IPv6. Uh, I think that what this highlights is just a, a lack of uh, administrative experience working with IPv6. 
for I think that's probably therefore an organization's largest risk is just not having the systems in place. So this is a write up. Um, I haven't been able to review it myself yet on what you should do. Avinkata, anything you'd like to add? I, I was just going to add that the, the biggest thing that I, uh, or, or the biggest uh, security thing that I see with IPv6 is that people have laptops and all sorts of things that are enabled with IPv6 by default. Um, they have home networks that they throw it on and they don't actually have, um, they don't actually have like uh, firewalls or like, things yeah. like that. they just have a router. Um, IPv6 doesn't have a concept. Well, I mean, it, by default, it doesn't have a concept of NAT. So all IPv6 IP addresses that you're using are actually routable. So people can reach your stuff like at like at your house or in your small office yeah. or whatever um, by default. And people don't expect that and don't realize that like they're yeah. just wide open to. It's like you're sitting in you know you're sitting in Starbucks now. You're not really sitting in your house anymore. Like behind some protected network. So um, you know I've I've seen a few people who have been surprised by that fact. So. Uh, read up on IPv6 and understand. <laughs> yeah, that's a good highlight. We've all been, like you said, just so accustomed in our walled gardens, uh, which is great for most, the majority of consumers. But uh, if the routers uh, haven't caught up uh, and are adding some deep, well, I, I don't know how straightforward that would be, but if the routers aren't handling this by default, protecting the devices within the network, yeah, a lot of routers just route the IPv6 traffic, which you're just another node on on the net at that point, right? Like that you can be reached. Like your IPv4 requests yeah. will be denied, but your IPv6 requests will reach that end device that's sitting, yeah. you know, on your Wi-Fi network in your living room or whatever it is. You know, so those should be able to determine whether it's like WAN or LAN, right? And just uh, partition and filter traffic based on if, that. If you want that, yes. <laughs> Some people don't want that, so yeah. But there, you can. Yeah. It could definitely be implemented. I'm just saying there are lots of consumer and even some low end prosumer devices that do not, by default, um, filter IPv6 traffic uh, inbound. Yeah. All right. Anyone have something to add to this um, announcement? <clears throat> All right. Mm, this was another interesting tool. Uh, we had announced, I forget what it was called. It was somebody else researching secrets management tools. Uh, we were looking, I think it was like two, three weeks ago on office hours, we announced it. In fiscal is a, another tool in that same category. Um, and it looks pretty fancy and interesting to me. And let me describe why it's interesting to me. I think one of the challenges we see in the whole secrets management story as, uh, for uh, teams is how do you promote secrets from dev staging prod? Uh, not all secrets can be easily dynamically rotated, uh, you know, third-party integrations, for example. Um, one of the things we, one of the patterns we like, but it's also just not suitable for every situation is things like the SOPS operator, where you can use a KMS key to encrypt your secrets 
locally commit them and then use your IAM credentials um, to decrypt those using the SOPS uh, operator in your Kubernetes cluster. So uh, at, this is uh, leveraging or piggybacking on the whole AWS uh, IAM uh, infrastructure to be able to encrypt secrets that get committed to, to Git. But it's also really tedious to rotate a secret by uh, you know, going through the full uh, CICD process, also knowing that you know, the problem is, well, you got to rotate the secret. And the second you rotate the secret, unless you have dual um, users or identities um, for that service, the service in production is going to stop working. So that time needs to be minimal. Obviously, HashiCorp Vault exists to solve this problem and has been doing that well for a long time. In its current incarnation, though, HashiCorp Vault has predominantly been in the critical path of everything. So every service has to hit HashiCorp Vault. And I haven't liked that single point of failure as an architect. Obviously, companies get by with it. But Vault, HashiCorp Vault, though, uh, at HashiConf announced that they are adopting a new strategy in HashiCorp Vault, um, which is to be able to push secrets out to your various secret stores like ASM, SSM, and so forth. And that appeals to me as well, because then we can leverage you know, these services managed by the cloud provider, in this case, Amazon, uh, which have been proven to be acceptable in the critical path. So um, then, uh, then uh, basically HashiCorp Vault becomes the CMS for managing secrets. All right. So if you like, if you buy into that idea using HashiCorp Vault to manage your secrets, that's great. Unfortunately, it only supports very few secret stores. InFiscal seems to take that strategy and has uh, a larger number of integrations and allows you to expose a GUI to manage your secrets across these environments. And you know, uh, that that appeals to me. I don't know what the the, the whole the, you know, operationalizing story is for InFiscal. I only saw it today. I, I don't know how it handles authentication, if it integrates with your IDP uh, easily. That's always one of those questions. And uh, the key thing here is also to highlight that this is not in the critical path of your applications. This is just a way to populate secrets across your environments. So if, you know, the, HA of this uh, service isn't as critical as something like HashiCorp Vault. Um, I also don't know what the commercial component is of this. It seems to be backed by an organization, the fiscal, and I don't know uh, like what is you know enterprise or paid for features or not. Anyone uh, think, seen this project before? I've seen I've seen it before, and I think one of the things that they do is they have a um, they have a hosted version that they run that you mm. pay for, um, so you don't have to operationalize it. I think okay. that's how they make money. So they actually have like a SaaS um, for that's it. Cool. The only the only thing that scared me when I first saw this this project was like uh, they have a rate of something like five hundred commits a month that are being made to the to the repo, and I keep thinking That's like, high. what the hell? What the hell are they changing so quickly? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's only yeah, been a lot around for like commits. a couple months. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe they're a they're maybe not doing squash merges. <laughs> which uh, based on this, it doesn't look like they're doing squash merges. So yeah, I think it's true. just, uh, it's, this is a commit of a, a stream of consciousness of every developer. Maybe, yeah, um, <laughs> that, that, that could be, but I just saw the, I just saw the number of commits and I was like, whoa, <laughs> that yeah. was high. 
but I guess you're right. Maybe they are, uh, and they're, they're not. 34 contributors. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And Wait, the, which the is releases, good. if you look at the releases, like they release very frequently too. Um, yeah. Which know, I which is, like, um, I hate it when as an end user, you, you know, the fix you need, uh, you got to wait for the 2.7 release. That'll be out in three weeks from now. You can yeah. compile it yourself. <clears throat> there's two sides to that story. So there's that. Yeah. Like, where, I agree. When you're when, when when it's been fixed and it hasn't been released yet, that sucks. But then there's also upgrade fatigue. Like, yeah, That's I want to be at the latest, you know, at the latest version. But like, what what the hell did yeah. I miss? I'm I'm. 37 versions behind like oh my god what, yeah. you know what's in there like you know, oh dude 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 going <laughs> back to the whole chat gpt thing uh never write a commit message again what yeah. we need tell me everything that changed yeah, yeah we yeah. need we need open ai chat gpt uh release notes between two releases all right somebody go implement it please you can't it can't it can't talk to live repos it only has to store. No, 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 but that's it. No, 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 no. But that's the thing. You, you get, you gather all the notes. Oh, gather it all and pass it to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there's a limit. There's a limit to the size of the data you can send to it right now. I tried that. Right, right. Smaller (laughs) releases. Smaller releases release frequently. That's. Yeah. But I forget. It's like, uh, it's like 4k or something is the max size that you can send to chat GPT. Interesting. Cause I tried, I tried sending it like a reference page to something and asking it to summarize yeah. it for me. And it said like, your, your request is too big. Interesting. I, I, it didn't make my list here. I don't know where I post. I, I didn't post it. I saw somewhere on Hacker News yesterday. It was a service that uh, let you interact with um, a whole slew of uh, books out there and ask questions interactively with it. And I assumed that it was doing something like this, just taking the text and submitting it and enabling you to query it. But they might actually be running the model themselves. Like the, like the chat GPT model is like open source. So you can, you can basically run that against your own text and then, and then like build your own bot around it and all that kind of thing. But yeah. How many gigs is the model? Do you know? I don't. I would assume pretty big. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like petabytes or a <laughs> petabyte. I don't know. Maybe it's not that big, but it's probably big. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that was managed chaos. Uh, thanks uh, for sharing that. Um, did you have something you wanted to add to that, Jenkins? Not on- really. I I picked that up and hadn't looked at it yet. Um, I saw it was backed by Y Combinator, and that's kind of what pulled me oh. into looking at it. Yeah, because they're essentially a startup at this point, and yeah. um, they do have the, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it enterprise yet, but the cloud component, where if you don't want to host your own service, you can buy, you know, yeah. I guess hosting for your secrets through them. Um, but I, I think I was looking at it more for the self-hosted aspect, something that's maybe a little bit easier yeah. to host than Vault. Um, and kind of what you mentioned doesn't necessarily require as much HA and all the unlocking yeah. and locking and all this other kind of stuff yeah um yeah. If, if there's something that's like really easy to just like hey this is my secret store and i can inject secrets then that's kind of what um appealed to me i just haven't looked at it yet how did you find it i can't remember where i saw it i, I think it might have been on reddit um okay i think it might have been at the like pinned at the top of the devops 
uh, page and Reddit. And um, have you, is I, there like a Helm chart for it or something? Have you seen how it's um, deployed? The, I know you can do like a server install using Docker Compose, and mm -hmm. there is a Kubernetes uh, deployment. I will paste it into the Zoom chat. I was literally mm -hmm. just looking at this page. Um, no. Yeah, and it does, uh, looks like it does have a Helm, uh, Helm chart for it. Nice. That's very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about it. I, it's like... Go on. Now I'm saying I'm glad that there is uh, more competition in this space because we use yeah. a similar thing. It's not open source. It's called Doppler. And um, it's because it was way more affordable than Vault. Um, so more competitors in the space will probably even make that more reasonable. Doppler? Or... Yeah, the ER. What? They got the one with the E? I know. Doppler right? Secrets. Mm. Click up. All right, that's cool. All right. Oh, yeah, what's the how does this priced? Oh, it's zero dollars a month. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no credit card required. All right. Oh, here we go. Okay. <laughs> so for developers, Eight, per user, 18 bucks a month. Yeah, yeah, 18 bucks a month. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's nice. Although, oh, yes. look, look, Eric, uh, a company with without an SSO tax. Yeah, <laughs> they nice. did. They, yeah, they. Uh, it was in. It was in their like whatever. Not in the enterprise tier. Yeah, nice. That's uh, cool. All right, uh, another uh, so. Oh, before you get on that, I just wanted yeah. to answer real quick. I I looked it up, and most most people who don't have direct access uh, that have done all the work have have predicted that the Chat GPT model is somewhere between six and eight terabytes. Okay, not nearly as big as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, totally reasonable. You could almost yeah. fit that on a fake uh, seven terabyte uh, SD card from Amazon. Yeah, I can uh, I can fit that on my NAS here at home. All right. Uh, next announcement is uh, another one from uh, Michael, Managed Chaos. You're on a roll. Quark. Kubernetes without Kubelet. Uh, and I was scratching my head for a while trying to understand it uh, or like the use case for it. But uh, I think I get it and I understand now. It, this seems like a great way to get operational experience working with Kubernetes on the command line, running like the kubectl commands. And it resonates because I was just uh, looking over someone's shoulder, uh, one of our customers, and the developer was doing exactly that. It was running these commands, learning how to cordon, learning how to kind of manage the cluster. So uh, this is a great way to simulate it. I, I suppose that all Quark's doing is emulating the node API and registering lots of bogus nodes so that you can um, you know, manage them that way. Um, aside from that, I'm not really 100% uh, sure uh, use cases. Uh, Michael, can you contribute? Yeah, yeah. So I was looking at this um, for exactly what you're saying, like um, working with clusters at scale. So uh, essentially, I have a need to create multiple namespaces. 
um, within a single context that have maybe hundreds of pods within each namespace. So basically, I just need a lot of stuff to work with, right? Um, and I mean, there are real clusters, so I'm like trying to model real clusters, but of course, I don't want to be operating on the real Kubernetes oh. controller. I, I want a playground, you know, I want just like a little sandbox mm. where I can totally figure out how to do stuff. So yeah, this is perfect for that because if I want to have, yeah. I mean, I haven't taken this, you know, too crazy, but if I can get hundreds of thousands of uh, pods yeah. uh, across maybe hundreds of namespaces and a maybe a few dozen contexts yeah. and then maybe multiply that across regions, then we're really talking about something like that's, that's more realistic of what uh, an yeah. actual workload might be. So yeah, that's it, really it cool. Like pretty cool way to model that. If if again, I haven't gotten that far. Maybe like two or three weeks from now, I'll, I'll report back. You know, uh, and let yeah. you know. But that's kind of where I'm I'm going with this. But just also to uh, correct what I said. So this is not just simulating lots of nodes. It's lots of types of resources. So it can simulate pods as well, uh, which is the point you're talking about. And therefore, this seems like a great thing that anybody writing operators or uh, things that operate on top of Kubernetes, this should be part of like your integration testing is see how it performs when you have 10,000 pods in a cluster, um, although they're synthetic pods. Yeah, it'd be great if you could, uh, you know, if you can use this for like somewhat of chaos engineering to test all those yeah. tools, like introduce failures and introduce delay and introduce like all those types of things and see how your tools uh, behave in yeah. those environments. Yeah. And can you spec, and then obviously these can have requests and all that. So this could also be an interesting way to simulate scaling within a cluster. Like if you have, so, so A, your use case, Michael, exactly what you're trying to do, which is local development where you don't have the resources, uh, Another use case might be you're using Carpenter and you want to see how quickly you can react to certain events, like if a certain number of requested pods uh, come online, how long it takes to scale up. And you can do that then here without having to. Maybe. I'm, I'm curious how deeply integrated this is then. Like, is will this trigger scaling events? I assume it would. Yeah, that I don't know. I haven't, haven't gone that far down the road yet. You can snapshot it. That's cool. So going back to that use case of integration testing, come up with kind of like the the size of the cluster you want to have, snapshot it, and then just restore that for quickly um, repeating the same tests. And uh, next announcement, just a minor one. Um, uh, Terraform Cloud came out with a nice feature uh, called projects as a way to organize your workspaces. Um, it, it means pretty much what it says. You have an organization that can have multiple projects. So as your adoption of um, Terraform Cloud expands, it can be overwhelming for uh, teams to see, you know, 1,000 workspaces there of which 10 of them have any relevance to them. Spacelift has a related feature. They call them spaces. Um, this is interesting competition now that we see uh, where I think, you know, Spacelift being a leaner, meaner, uh, younger company is able to innovate on some of these things faster than HashiCorp. So HashiCorp has now uh, 
kind of been a fast follower of a lot of the features you've, we've been seeing in Spacelift, things like drift detection, which has been out for a very long time. Spacelift uh, finally came out in uh, Terraform Cloud spaces now being uh, introduced as projects and probably lots more like this. I'm, I'm shaking my head because uh, I was just trying to scroll down on your screen that you were, you were like <laughs> showing on here. I, I was like, what, what's wrong? That's actually what I wanted to see was that <laughs> can the team-based permissions be applied to the project? And it says it right there. <laughs> I was like, why can't I scroll? What's wrong with this? <laughs> yeah, so you can actually give permissions at the, at the project level, which is pretty cool. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I will say though, I, I still, I don't know, it's just me. I, I still like the Terraform Cloud UX more than I like Spacelift as much as I like Spacelift as a product. This is just more intuitive for me to navigate. I agree. Does that change your calculus at all about recommending Spacelift over uh, anything else? <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, if you want to pay 10, 10x more, then yeah. I guess. Actually, to, to figure out what uh, what Towerform Cloud is going to cost you, you actually need calculus. That's the problem. Yeah. So hopefully, I, I don't know. Uh, at HashiConf, it sounded like they said they, they're aware of their pricing being... Um, the word they used but turning away people and that they're supposedly doing something about yeah. that but pricing and uh and bring your own compute yeah that, 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 that uh, always hurts right like yeah pay us 10 times what it costs to host <laughs> it yourself and um yeah, yeah. although they, they let you host premium. the entire thing yourself if you want but they charge you a yeah. big premium for that yeah all right, mm, running low on announcements here now. Uh, last one is a new entrant into the Terraform Drift category. Um, the Drift CTL has enjoyed a long lead in this category as an open source tool for detecting drift. Um, Terraform, what I liked about uh, Drift CTL and its approach uh, to drift detection is it's actually looking at the Terraform state file and, and ingesting all your state files of all your projects. So it's not, it's a, I believe Terraform CTL therefore doesn't care about how you organize your projects or your Terraform code and therefore is a more generalized approach. Now, you know, I always thought it very ambitious what they're trying to do with Drift CTL uh, in terms of uh, reconciling what's you know, in the state and, and not in the state. TerraDrift is taking the practical approach uh, that Terraform Cloud and Spacelift and others are doing, which is just replan your Terraform projects. And you know, if there are changes, you have drift. Um, it's not helping you understand if there are resources outside of your Terraform code, kind of like IAC code coverage, if you will. Um, that's what Drift CTL can do as well. Now, TerraDrift taking this approach where it's actually running Terraform plan and telling you if you have drift, this is the part that I'm a little bit skeptical about. I'm skeptical because there's a million ways that Terraform projects are organized 
whether you're using Terragrunt, you're using just vanilla Terraform, using Atmos, TerraMate, TerraSpace, Terra whatever, TerraAsterix, uh, then, you know, I don't know how effective this will be, but those are fixable. It uh, looks like they were clearly inspired by Kubernetes <laughs> and the output of kubectl. But nice, uh, simple dashboard here. I don't, I don't know if there's a web mode for it, but that would also be kind of nice. Well, as long as as long as they use the the state file as the source of truth, they, they don't like. Yeah, that I'm saying like the other tools like that do that oh, okay. should not have problems. It, it wouldn't matter what the what the the tools are, but this one seems a lot more complicated to to get there. Yeah. Also, like I saw this comment here, it's like they're they're actually parsing the the, the plane output instead of the uh, JSON output. So, yeah. okay. Last announcement is uh, <laughs> you know we should uh, rebrand office hours to the Terraform Registry Announcement Show. Um, I can't get below here to open the link. Hey, you know how we have, um, you know how we have uh, uh, tacos. We need it. We can use a new abbreviation for these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for registries. Um, I can't think of anything witty off the top of my head there, but yeah. So Tapir is another private registry for your Terraform repository. This one looks like it's in. Is it? Uh, uh, Java, yeah, palm file. So in Java, uh, so pick your language and get your registry. Cool, that's it. Anyone else have some announcements? AWS oh. or the or the similar? <laughs> there you go. Eric. You can call them. You can call them asshats <laughs> and other self-hosted Terraform. <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> all right there's there's a lot of them at this point i, I really i really wonder like we need a registry of regist of terraform registries yeah. but like who really needs one like that much i mean i guess some i guess enterprises but like are enterprises really going to run this instead of like Artifactory or, you know, yeah. something else? And then well, why do we have so many others? That's kind of my, yeah. uh, my thought there. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, and to me, the only one that kind of makes sense is the Artifactory one. And even that one doesn't fully, I, I don't know, I can't remember if it, I think it might work uh, the way I intended. The, the biggest issue I see is that you don't need just a registry for your module, or in my opinion, I think it should vendor the entire artifact chain of all the dependencies of that yeah, module. That's, it calls other, exactly. That's how artifactory works. Yeah. Exactly. And that when you pull those artifacts, they still, you, you can approve or decline them uh, and not allow any external uh, modules to be used. I think that makes sense to me. And I don't believe any of these registries except for Artifactory do that. 
Yeah, Artifactory, we're, we're working with a customer right now that uses Artifactory and that's exactly how it works. You, it, it basically proxies the entire like registry.towerform.io um, piece of it. Mm. And then when you specify the module that you want to use, um, if it's not in Artifactory's cache of that, uh, of the upstream module, it will it will give you like a module not found, you know. So you you mm -hmm. have to explicitly have to it. approve it and and then you know pull it into Artifactory to get it like synchronized. Which they have tools to do that, but um, you know yeah. that has to get done. And but I can tell you from my work today, uh, when a module <laughs> that you want to use that isn't in there, it's a giant pain in the ass. Uh, when, really? Uh, when well when. When multiple different groups control what ends up yeah. in Artifactory versus you know the person consuming it, it's a pain. I think what you really need is a sandbox Artifactory at that point. Like, let me get the work done. Let me validate, like, get this end to end working and validate it, and then you can you know bless it incrementally. Yeah. yeah. This is second. All right. Uh, let's see. We are done with announcements. Let's go into Q and A. Um, this was old from last week. Oops. Any uh, any questions for this week? What is the most commonly used the Terraform private registry? Uh, Terraform Clouds probably, or Terraform Enterprise probably. Uh, if we're talking open source, um, I don't know. I would bet it's Artifactory. Is, but it, no, I, it's is not, the, not open source, but okay, yeah. Other than other than the official Terraform one, I mean, I would the yeah. the, the most popular third party one. I would bet was Artifactory. Yeah. All right. Next, uh, let's see. Review the Office Hours uh, channel here in Sweet Ops. See what questions have been asked. So tedious working on a single screen when you're used to multiple. All right. Yeah, I don't see any questions. Uh, so let's just open it up to the floor. Anyone have a question to uh, ask the group today? Think of this like a mastermind. Do actually. Um, All right, Isaac. Yeah. So uh, we we've transitioned into a microservices module at my org, and so we're. Let me set the scene. So we have a front end application, and then the front end application talks to the back end through a back end for the front end, which basically is a GraphQL layer. And then we have the microservices on the back end that the GraphQL layer talks to. And um, we're running into challenges trying to figure out a good microservice uh, versioning slash deployment strategy. We already use semantic versioning. That's that's not a problem, and we plan to keep on using that. It's more a question of uh, the process around deprecating and backwards compatibility and API versioning, so that the backend team can keep on making changes uh, without having to wait for 
for any of the other teams. The challenge is that uh, we really don't want to do versioning on the GraphQL layer because GraphQL doesn't recommend it to begin with. And it also makes things complicated when it comes to uh, deployment. So does anyone have experience doing this thoughts, skeletons that they've seen in the past that we should consider while we brainstorm the best approach? I give this one to you, Matt. Yeah, so th there's a lot to unravel there, but one of the, the big questions is um, what, how do you communicate from your GraphQL resolvers to your microservices? Um, and the way that I've generally seen this done before is that you end up um, you end up having your your payload, like your request payload and your response payload, um, coming you know between each you know uh, between the the GraphQL API layer and whichever services it's talking to to grab stuff. Um, that communication is versioned. Um, and then you can um, you can actually on a verb by verb basis, you know, uh, and endpoint by endpoint basis, um, you can decide which version of the microservices you talk to on a back end, on the back end, and you can have multiple versions of the microservice like up and running simultaneously, so that different um, you know different services can communicate with different versions. Of the microservice during you know during your migration and your upgrade and and all of those things, um, but it gets it gets fairly complicated and, it, and you need you need a really good um, <clears throat> you need a really good feature flagging system um, that determines those things about like what you like where you're talking to and um, you know what what the data schemas are that you expect and. And all of those things, and and I think the other thing I'll just throw out there, and then I'll stop, and you can ask more questions if you have them, is that um, being very um, mindful and uh, thoughtful about how you how you migrate your your uh, contract, your your data contract between microservices over time makes this a lot easier. So if you're always additive. Um, and or you have some other way like so that you're not breaking, um, you know, you're not breaking backward compatibility. Uh, that also makes these types of, um, um, you know, rapid iteration and staged migration where only certain pieces of your infrastructure talk to certain versions of your um, uh, of your uh, microservices a lot easier. So I guess I'll, I'll pause there after because I said a lot. No, no, that's helpful. Um, I, I'm not sure that we are at the level of engineering maturity yet to fully use uh, to use feature flags. We use them a little bit on the front end part, but we're not quite there yet to use it throughout the entire life cycle. And so I guess my question would be, is all of this just not possible if you're not actively using feature flags? Because my, my first instinct was just to, yeah, go on. Well, the one thing I was going to bring up was just uh, it, 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 as an alternative com complementary to the feature flags, and I forget what it was called. We had a customer that uh, was a big rail shop uh, with 40, 50 microservices. I don't remember what software they were using, 
but uh, something that uh, validated all your contracts as part of your CI process. So every service uh, declares what APIs uh, you know uh, it, it would expect and the format of those responses. Um, and uh, there was a database basically of this. So they could test if they were breaking the API contracts between all of their services by making some change. That, I mean, but that was a very, I consider that a very pure solution, a very elegant solution, but it was very tedious. Uh, and yeah. people, and it was always I mean, failing. If you're using like, you know, open API, you know, formerly known as like Swagger um, for HTTP calls, or if you're using like protobufs or, you know, something like that, all of that validation is built into the tooling for those things to make sure that, you know, two versions aren't breaking it. You just have to set it all up to do it. Um, but I will make a comment, I guess, uh, Isaac, to, to one of your points. It's like um, what you're saying is almost where you're saying like the the engineering level maturity isn't, isn't there yet. Um, it, it's almost like saying, you know, well, I'm driving, I'm driving a Lamborghini, but I haven't reached financial maturity yet enough to, to pay for Lamborghini insurance. Um, you know, it, it's, you're, you're kind of playing with fire if you've, if you've evolved to, um, to an engineering point where you have very complex needs of um, having multiple services, you yeah. know, with, with rapidly implemented, rapidly iterated on, quick deployments, um, multiple versions running at the same time, but you're not willing to adopt the thing that makes that all work, which is like feature flagging. And feature flagging doesn't have to be launched darkly, um, but there should be some like, some way it could be, I mean, it could be a poor man's version of it where you have environment variables and other things that, that let you know how to do that. There's, there's lots of ways to do feature flagging, Clearly, the most elegant and um, best way to support it is by you know a commercial offered product that's run as a SaaS and has thought about all the the pitfalls and and hairy edge cases of, of feature flagging. But um, yeah. if you don't use any kind of feature flagging, all you're doing is asking for uh, either service outage or data corruption uh, somewhere in in your future, you know, up here because someone didn't understand that that making this change was going to cause this or, oh, we didn't have a test that covered blah or, you know, dot, dot, dot. You know, that's that's yeah. where you'll end up, unfortunately. Uh, I've seen it just way too often um, that that happens. And and the more, the more microservices you have and the more your microservices interact, the the more exponential that product, that problem becomes yeah. um, as you do it. So yeah, that's that's my advice. That's that's a great point. I think the more I, I grow into this role, I find that a lot of it is a is about picking my battles. And so yeah. this sounds like one of the battles that I do have to pick. Um, and then I'll have yeah. to figure out how to make sure that the org understands that we need to prioritize adopting feature flags to aid this process. Otherwise, it it won't really work out well. Yeah. How large and, and is if the you, organization? That, that, that the was largest was organization. <laughs> Oh, not very large. We're a small startup, uh, about Oof. yeah, fifty engineers. Yeah, yeah. so, 50 or so 15? then fifty. Okay. I was gonna say, like, you know, you, you might just be over engineered. 
right? That, that was and, also what I was about to say. <laughs> go back. To, I was about to say go back to Omano with. That's probably a yeah, better solution for yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. But inside the constraint of your of your tool set, right? The the whole right. point of the feature size, the whole point of the uh of, of of these versioning systems is to is to ensure that the right communication happens such that contracts aren't violated in a way that's going to result in outages and system instability right so ultimately it's a question uh, of communication it would have really boils down to i would say so so i share jim jim's point of view uh strongly for a long time uh up until recently and I've been reading a book called Working Backwards, um, just on how Amazon scaled the business. And it was kind of enlightening for me because as an engineer, I think of it probably in the same way a lot of you do. Like this is architecturally the right way to do it, probably. You know, it, it makes a lot of sense. You can scale into individual components, you can version the APIs, and you can do all of that. Amazon does it, so therefore we have to go do it. <laughs> no. Amazon actually was a massive monolith for the longest time until they couldn't be a monolith anymore. And they implemented this not because technically it couldn't be a monolith anymore. They implemented this because they had too many people that needed features implemented and it was too hard to modify a monolithic code base. So they broke things out into smaller services that had contracts like you know to use the modern terminology on you know what services they provided but and this was so that two teams could get a feature implemented without having to modify the code base of the other team um, and i think that's what made that's what was this you know epiphany here for me that that's when you start seeing both that you have scaling issues but also that you have organizational issues that you cannot innovate fast enough that's when you should start thinking about this. Otherwise, you're actually hampering the most costly and, and limiting factor as being an early startup. It is that you're agile. It's that you can move so much faster than these massive companies that are entrenched. So the monolith at your scale will let you do that much faster and you don't have to worry about the scale. And then when you need to worry about the scale, you can solve that. And and if you do it all from a mono repo, it actually becomes much easier because you see what you've broken at compile time before anything happens, like right away. Yeah. You can go fix all those things and deploy it all uh, in an orchestrated way, which is pretty easy too. So yeah. it's, uh, um, yeah, I plus one to both what, what both of you, uh, you and Jim said. Yeah. So check out, uh, I forget what chapter was, but working backwards, it'll give a better depiction of uh, why they moved and that you can maybe bring up to management and they'll hear your case. All right. Uh, if, we are. It, it, my, my other thing was uh, a metric I, I, I asked some teams that I worked with before was um, how many engineers do you have uh, per service that you're running? Um, <laughs> and and if, if the numbers are like, you know, high you know the services are outnumbering the engineers and uh or, or approaching that then something probably is going wrong in the way that you're you're working on your uh on breaking down your your stuff at the scale that you're at yeah thanks this is very helpful all right well we are almost at time any uh, last uh, minute questions
Um, just wanted to ta uh, to um, address one of the questions um, or statements uh, that Roy made. Um, that you know they would typically. This goes back to like why uh, would we even want to have a private terraform registry and why artifactory is nice and um, uh, you know. He says, you know, we would typically mirror the modules repo uh, into their own repository. And this works fine, but there's a big caveat to it. If that module relies on other child modules, and those child modules are presumably versioned as well, the problem gets really messy fast because you're going to have lots of modules that you version in, and then all the versions of that. And then you also need to update all the module references to use the ver the vendored version of the module. And it at, at that point, you, you, when you start implementing it, you realize, yeah, never mind this this uh, this spiraled in complexity. Don't want to do it. Now, if you're just if you own all your own modules, if you write them all from scratch, you probably don't have this problem. And yeah, you can totally do that. It's when you use open source third party modules that this becomes a challenge. All right, well, let me uh, get back to the slides here then. Thank you everyone for participating in our office hours this week. Uh, lots of great announcements and interesting uh, topics discussed. If you'd like to share this recording with your team uh, so they can stay uh, in touch with everything we discussed, you can find that recording by going to youtube.com slash cloud posse. We'll post that later on in the day. For those of you who haven't yet registered for our office hours, you can do so by going to cloudposse.com slash office hours. Uh, that will send you a invitation so you can add it to your calendar. We have our weekly newsletter at newsletter.cloudposse.com. Uh, doesn't always go out weekly, but we try. And then uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Thank you all. See you all next week. Same time, same place.